This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Lex Sokolin. Lex is the head economist at Consensus, a major Ethereum development company that built MetaMask. Our conversation breaks down the Ethereum merge and its implications on the network and ecosystem. We discuss how the switch affects centralization, the crypto economics of inflation and deflation, and popular market narratives around the event. Please enjoy this conversation with Lex. Today, I'm joined with Lex Sokolin, head economist at Consensus. Lex, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a special day. It was hard to get this all scheduled, but the merge is today. At least according to everyone's intel, it should be sometime in, I think, in the next 15 to 16 hours. So I'm sure you're busy. But a special day, I thought a great place to start would be maybe give a little bit of the background of how we got to this monumental point for Ethereum. If you look at blockchains today, there's different generations of blockchains, and they're built for different purposes. The blockchains that are Bitcoin and then the various forks of that are quite different from the smart contracts blockchains, the programmable blockchains that are really there to run applications in addition to holding various digital assets. And if you look at most, if not all, of the blockchains that have a programming language that can execute software, that can run applications and so on, most of those, for their consensus mechanism, the way that they arrive to truth and scarcity and all the good things we like about decentralized infrastructure, are proof of stake or some other variation thereof. And incidentally, the benefits of that is in the environmental impact. So you're not essentially idling graphics cards to win a probabilistic puzzle. They're very efficient to bootstrap and they can give you quite a bit of security for the cost of the capital that's put in there. Anyway, all that's to say, just even observing today, the generations of Bitcoin, Litecoin, and other stuff that people are still maybe crypto trading because YOLO and so on. On the other hand, the Web3 narrative of, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had this awesome economy of digitally native things where people join DAOs, make NFTs, bank inside of DeFi, and have decentralized entities and so on. They're very different visions for the future. And already there's tons of evidence and outcomes where there's the split in generation. And I think Ethereum, if you're following the merge or listening this after the merge, Ethereum has had a vision for being that kind of Web3 settlement layer for software and decentralized applications since the beginning. I mean, there's no Ethereum, there's no one person, there's not even one group of people, but the community and the developers around it have recognized that the thing needs to scale 
It needs to be performant. And there are lots of different barriers to scale. Some of them are how many transactions goes through the thing. Some of them are what's the cost of gas to use the network and to execute some sort of software. And some of them are political or cultural or narrative barriers around electricity usage and environmental impact. And some of them are about who can participate in securing the network. And all of these are different barriers. And what the merge represents is the overcoming of some of those barriers by switching from the proof of work mechanism, which is anchored in the Bitcoin history, which is no disrespect and certainly not in a critical way, is more of the the coal engine or the gasoline engine of crypto towards a capital-focused engine, the proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, and trying to do that in real time with the full ecosystem of Ethereum on top of it is quite a difficult thing. So while it was clear, it was recognized that the direction that the community wanted to go was proof-of-stake in this particular consensus mechanism, it's taken a while to get it right and to get it performant and to get it into a place where the developers felt comfortable enough to do the transition without blowing everything up. Let's just dive into some of those things to give the audience a little bit better of understanding. At a high level, when you have the different generations, could you give like your explain it like it's five, how proof of work works versus how proof of stake works? The first thing is like, why does the thing matter anyway? For the very novice listener, why does any of this matter? And what's even the value proposition? Why does the mining mechanism or the validation mechanism of a blockchain matter? And if you understand that, you might understand why blockchains matter and why all of the Web3 stuff matters at all. And so for me and for many others, it comes down to having a person can understand a digital economy that runs on a blockchain. And there is this one special trick, this one special gear that's missing from the internet. And that gear is digital scarcity. So if you have a cup of coffee in the physical world, you can hold it, you can consume it, or you can sell it. And then if I give you the coffee and you give me money, I don't have the coffee anymore, you have it. We understand that. That's the animal instinct of trade and all of that makes sense. Now we go on into the digital world and my digital coffee if I give it to you, an equivalent of it being an MP3 or a Word document or presentation or a video file, whatever, you have it and I have it. So all of a sudden, we're in this machine world. And maybe the machine world is good, but what the machine world does is that everything is infinite. And if everything is infinite, it's also worthless. And if it's worthless, then it's powered by advertising. And if it's powered by advertising, you have huge returns to scale. And then you have a funky outcome. People other than me will make very ideologic arguments about Web2 is bad and Google and Facebook and politics and so on. But it's this one gear of scarcity doesn't work. So what blockchains do and what Bitcoin does through its grinding of electric power into blocks is create digital scarcity for digital goods. So if I have a Bitcoin or if I have a digital coffee, I give it to you, you give me some money, and then I don't have it anymore. All of this is like creating a physics for the digital world, a physics that we can understand and build economies around. But it's not free, this quality. In order to create it, we have to agree on essentially a timeline. There's a multiverse of lots of versions of Word documents, but you want to agree on like, this is the one. And in order to create that timeline, which is the chain of blocks, you've got to have mechanisms for every period of time that you go block by block 
you have to agree on what the truth is. And to do that, there's a lot of math and cryptography. So there's a lot of complicated math that goes into creating agreement, i.e. consensus, for what that truth is at any particular point of time, and also for what the truth is backward. So you get a historical timeline of all the things that happen in the digital world. And this is amazing because we do not have that on the internet at all. The first pass of this, or not the first, but the first mainstream pass of this with Bitcoin is mining. For mining, essentially, what you have to do is you have to make it expensive for somebody to attack the network and cheat. I'm Loki, god of mischief, and I want to mess with the timeline and steal all the things from it. Well, you have to punish actors like that and make it expensive for them to do it. And so the way you make it expensive is you create cost in order to create blocks. And then the way that cost for miners happens is that you have to get essentially a specialized hardware device. Sometimes it's a graphics card, sometimes it's a CPU, it depends on what you're mining. And you have to plug that into your socket, your wall socket, and drink electricity. And then what your hardware device does is it solves mathematical puzzles that have arbitrary difficulty in order to get, with some chance, a reward from the blockchain consensus mechanism for mining that block. And if you have enough of these things, on average, you start getting rewards that are smooth. If you have just one, then they happen once in a while and so on. But the mining hardware is your cost and it protects the network. So the more the network grows, the more that there's value on it, you want the mining costs to actually go up because that protects the truth of this timeline of all the digital assets and all their histories and who owns what and how that was sent around and transacted and so on. And so you get to a place where you got a giant network like Bitcoin and it costs quite a bit in terms of hardware and electricity to maintain. It is quite secure as a result of that. But not everybody can be a miner and there are big returns to scale from doing it. And there are also costs to that. So now if you switch to proof of stake, it's a much more abstract mechanism. It achieves or it tries to, and I think there's good evidence of the success of it based on other chains. It tries to achieve the same outcome, which is to protect the timeline, the chain of blocks by making it expensive to be false, to be an attacker. And the way this happens is that instead of mining, validating, so just a switch of words. So there is a validation of the blockchain that you perform. And instead of getting a hardware rig and a GPU that you overclock, what you do is you take some of your capital denominated in the native token of the blockchain you're validating, i.e. ETH in this case for Ethereum, and you stake it, which just means you put it in a box as collateral. The mental image you can have is you've got a couple of dollars, you want to enter some experience, you put the dollars into a box, the dollars sit in the box while you're there, and then when you want to leave, you can take the dollars back out again. And maybe if you were a good actor, there's a reward, there's an extra penny in there. And if you were a bad actor, you get penalized. It's actually kind of like a deposit when you rent an apartment. Okay, there's so many people that are probably mad at me right now. But roughly speaking, staking is putting your capital at risk while you're doing the validation activity. And then if, again, if you're a bad actor, you're going to get punished. And the math makes it fairly efficient. You actually get more security in terms of the amount of capital it'll take to break the network is higher if you're going with staking over if you're going with hardware mining. The other benefit is that staking is a lot more accessible. You have to be a certain type of eccentric to be able to hardware mine. Whereas with staking, it's very likely the outcome is that 
anybody who's holding ETH will be able to either stake directly if they have the 32 ETH, or maybe stake in a fractional way through some sort of derivative or a wrap token if they have less. So it's going to be much more aligned for the users of the network to participate in the security of the network. It's a different mechanism. There are reasons why people can be critical. There's a bootstrapping element to it. It brings some of the incentives internal to the protocol instead of the physical world. That said, I do think there's a ton of evidence of staking being a successful way to secure a chain and for it to be quite decentralized with thousands of validators who are already staking on the beacon chain for Ethereum. What are some of those critical arguments that you've heard that you do think have merit that are worth debating? So like, for example, the notion that by the proof of work has the use of hardware and electricity, it's specialized, a small group of people that are in large pools doing this versus the notion that now, hypothetically, with a large pool of capital, the Ethereum chain could be corrupted. What are some of the criticisms that you believe have merit? It's hard for me to give power to the things I don't believe. This is like the Arthur Hayes argument, which is just so delicious, which is actually the entire human experience and all of its economic markets and all of its commercial blah, blah, blah can just be reduced down to calories. So the price of oil is the only thing that matters because the only thing that matters in the human world is energy. That's hard to refute because it's not falsifiable. But money can overtake either network. Hypothetically, one could go and rebuild all of the mining capacities to compete with the existing miners for Bitcoin. I don't think it's out of the budget of a real adversary if that adversary were to be either the United States or China or Russia. Alternately, it could be Warren Buffett just going and buying a bunch of public companies. You go buy Riot, and I haven't followed the Bitcoin space in detail for a while. You buy all the miners that escaped China, and then you buy a bunch of US public companies, you fire the management, and then you start, there you go, you're done. You got your hash power. You don't even have to build from scratch. I'm not saying that's really easy or feasible. I'm just saying that with money, you can attack, if you really want to, the proof of work network. And in fact, because it is specialized, because it is so specialized to mine well, and the dynamics of it are such that getting really good at figuring out the hardware so that you can really efficiently be profitable and, and so on. I think there's just natural returns to scale to that mining activity. And so in fact, you are exposing yourself to having these concentrations, which are a weakness. On the other hand, if you were to look at proof of stake systems, you have also weaknesses of pretty much the same type, although it doesn't feel like in proof of stake that you're going to trend towards centralization. For me, in proof of work, it feels like you do trend towards centralization because the industry dynamics of the hardware, whereas in proof of stake, you're probably starting from a point of centralization. You might be starting from a token sale or offering, or maybe you're starting from early miners who have asymmetrically larger exposure. And then with proof of stake, what you're allowed to do is if the asset becomes attractive enough by powering an economy, in my view, then you're going to have, number one, many more retail users, not investors, but users holding the asset and staking it, meaning it's anti-fragile. It has a long tail. 
So if you take the large holders and you remove them out of the network, you're still going to have a long tail of validators. So it's anti-fragile in that way. And then number two is if the asset is attractive, you're going to have other capital in a very market-driven way, other capital will be attracted to owning the capital. To me, that seems like it would create decentralization over time rather than centralization. I think both of the things I've said are debatable. And I think also there are some fantastic outcomes and achievements of the proof of work approaches that I'm happy to acknowledge, give credit to and support. But I don't think that because proof of work, quote unquote, is successful and works, I don't think therefore proof of stake is somehow not successful and doesn't work. There seems to always be a lot of tribalism between Bitcoin maxis and ETH maxis over one versus the other from a narrative standpoint. I try to think about it as objectively as I can. And one point you made, which I think is really interesting, which gets to the next topic of this notion that proof of stake may not trend towards centralization. I think from a capitalist standpoint, I think a lot of things trend towards centralization and scale that people might want exposure or something, but over time, that power gets centralized. For the average retail, and I think today being the merge is a big deal, talk to me about how staking worked before the merge on Ethereum and how you envision it working after and how retail might more easily participate. I think successful businesses with profitable economics are the reason you've got profits stacking on top of each other, which fuels growth. Generally speaking, this is good. We like businesses growing after they're successful. Amazon is big and centralized because our life is so lazy and good. If they didn't make our life so lazy and good, we wouldn't like Amazon and they wouldn't have the money to grow. And so we can complain about everything is Amazon, but at the same time, the vector by which that happened is that we all got fed with consumer surplus until we bought things from them, put everyone else out of business. So miners are businesses. And so if they do a good job, the better job they do, the more they're going to take market share. Whereas when I think about the staking bit in the asset class, owning an asset that is not a business, if you own some stocks, doesn't mean you're going to own more stocks. Lots of people will have savings and for different reasons out of the operating economy. And once they have financial assets, they'll transform that according to an asset allocation into stocks. I think that's accurate. I think the potential vector that others would put in there is exactly what you said, which is, well, who's providing the staking services? If all of the staking is happening through Coinbase, then Coinbase as a business ends up getting market power and going horizontal and consolidating all the smaller players into its footprint. So the risk of centralization is there, but it's not default there. It's about what is the business that will let people do this or not do this? So then to answer your question head on, before the merge, it's the proof of work chain, which is mainnet, where everybody does the stuff. And then there is a separate chain. At one point, it was the beacon chain. I'm not sure if we're still using that language or not. But there's a separate chain that follows the specification that developers have stood up, which has been running essentially in parallel to the mainnet proof of work chain. And in order to prove that staking worked and to do testing and develop on and so on, started to accept staking deposits quite a while ago. And so there's now, I believe, over 10 billion USD worth of ETH locked into, staked into that second chain into which we are transitioning in the merge. You've got a train running, 
the train is running on one train track, there's another track that it's going to split onto. It's the same train with all the same ecosystem, same DeFi app, same gas mechanisms. All of it is the same. It's just the rail on which is going to be different. And it's going to be electric powered, not coal powered. The staking pre-merge was such that you're likely staking through a provider that is running their own staking infrastructure on this new chain, which requires a lot of technical expertise and novelty and deep protocol knowledge. Or alternately, you might be holding a token that you think represents stake teeth. So Lido, Rocket Pool, and a bunch of others function in this way. So in the case of, let's say, Lido, what's going on is that that's a technical team. They know how to connect to the second chain. They know how to stake on it. They know the capital and the technical requirements. And so they're doing that on one side. On the other side, they're essentially issuing bonds or IOUs or derivatives, however you want to call them, in the shape of a staked ETH token. So the staked ETH tokens that are floating around that are being traded, that traded a discount to ETH and put Celsius or Voyager or whoever's in trouble and illiquid out of that, those tokens are essentially derivatives. And the derivative, it accrues the interest rate, it accrues the value out of the underlying staked ETH. And then it assumes that you can at some point withdraw. It assumes that the Lido mechanism will allow you to redeem once the transition happens and so on and so forth. So there's quite a bit of, I would call it credit risk from the old world, trusting a bank to pay you back. It's not credit risk, it's protocol risk and it's technical risk and cyber risk and so on. But largely you're holding a derivative. After the merge, you're going to be in a place where I think the primary risk of changing these railroad tracks goes away. You're no longer worried about, is this thing even going to happen? The risk profile of the whole thing goes down. Then you have a native interest rate coming out of the Ethereum network. That can be anywhere between 3% to 10%, depending on whether it's just the inflation, 0.5% inflation down from about 5% inflation now or whether it also includes the transaction fees. So if there's a lot of transaction fees, the interest rate goes up. If there's less transactions, then interest rate goes down. Whether there is MEV capture, so things like high-frequency trading type value capture that goes or does not go to validation and so on. So there's a range, but there's going to be an interest rate on the network. And that interest rate is accessible to anyone with ETH. So my expectation is that every wallet, every exchange, anyone that helps people hold ETH and use Web3 is going to have features that allow people to basically stake and plug into that interest rate. Now, there's more complexity in the sense, can you pull that out? When can you pull it out? And so on. They're worth thinking about. You're still going to have illiquidity for quite a while after the merge, but I think the major risk is going to be removed. Just going back to your point on the centralization, I think the part that I struggled with, both for proof of work and proof of stake, is that in your example before of thinking about businesses and profitability and drive towards centralization, to me, another lens to look at it is just if there's a friction and a consumer or a business doesn't want to deal with that friction, they'll kind of take the easiest path. And then the centralization eventually leads to oligopolies or monopoly power. So when I was first introduced to crypto and people explained mining, it made a lot of sense to me. And then as we've interviewed people, we talked to um, the CEO of Foundry, and watch us through it. And then I started to learn about the pools. And I was like, wait, this is like a small group. 
But on the proof of stake side, I see similar issues of if you're a retail client and you look at the size of Lido and their state ETH program, people are going to, I would say Main Street is going to tend towards the easiness side of it. And I'm really excited to get into the economics of the merge and interest rates and the internet bond. But before we go there, I just want to get your point of, as you were talking about, I was thinking about in TradeFi, you have passive funds that own massive amounts of equities. And that's fine. It gives retail exposure or a broad amount of great products. But it does present a new issue of how do you think about governance? If one superpower controls so much, how does decision-making happening? So if in my world, you don't trend towards decentralization, which I think would be more ideal for something like this, and something like Lido, have people thought about or have you thought about the control of governance power of making decisions when people outsource this type of transaction of staking? I think you make a very accurate point. BlackRock has a problem in that BlackRock owns the entire market, and then it's meant to delegate its shareholder voting. And how can it govern all these competitors that are trying to kill each other? And so you do have this intermediation issue. BlackRock is so big, I mean, it's trillions and trillions of assets that are all pulled together. And the reason for it, again, is totally on the distribution side, the way that people actually own stuff isn't to pick stocks, it's to pick ETFs or in their retirement funds, it's to pick mutual funds. And so they've given away their ability to pick stocks to a couple of third parties, Fidelity, BlackRock, Schwab, and those are the ones that own the market. And the outcome isn't nefarious. The outcome is just, well, people shouldn't day trade and choose stocks and they're not equipped for it. And so this is the easier solution and it's the interface and the distribution. I think it remains to be seen how it plays out on the ETH staking side. I can absolutely be wrong about it, but my sense for why liquid staking right now is so popular is because there's not anything else. You're trading derivatives. God bless staked ETH, but you're trading an obligation from a protocol. And you've seen a number of protocols being annihilated, Tornado Cash being the most beautiful example of how to set something that people like on fire and just destroy things. So just because people don't understand risk and desire to ignore it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because Terra has 40 billion in it doesn't mean that tomorrow it's not going to have zero. And I'm not trying to generate a run on stake teeth, but I'm pointing out that the crypto mindset is not your keys, not your money. And I would hope that having the direct control over your stuff is important rather than holding a derivative. And so people don't have direct access to the chain right now, but once they do, and once you're able to, from your wallet, stake and from your wallet, unstake, do that in a seamless way, in the same way that you use DeFi today, you know, with Maker or with Aave or whatever, if that functionality is integrated into your wallet and you just, it's a button that you do and your interest rate flows through there rather than by holding a derivative representation, I think that has different dynamics. Smaller amounts absolutely are likely to accrue and have weird outcomes. Just the last bit on governance, holding ETH and staking it doesn't mean you govern the protocol or anything about it. ETH is not a DAO in which a governance vote is controlled by your economic interest. You're not voting with your ETH. That's a major distinction from projects that organize governance in a different way, right? Trying to run a product or trying to run it like a business or like a public good, and they're trying to kind of go through some sort of community ratification process and so on. 
there are chains that function like that. You've got Tezos and so on that have tried to tie staking to delegated voting and then that connect that to product. There's not a ton of evidence in the market that that's what succeeds or really at the protocol level, that's what's good. And that instead having a much fuzzier human organization that develops the protocol, at least to date, has been more anti-fragile. It's been more resilient to do that. So going down to that transition about the new economics and what retail can do. So last week, if I wanted to stake, I had 32 ETH, I own 32 ETH. What would be the high level process of me trying to stake that money? And then tomorrow, hopefully when we wake up, this idea that I can just do it in my wallet, how far away are we from that? Let me try to take the intent of that question and dodge a bit of the detail. If you wanted to stake yesterday, you're probably going to be using some sort of stake token from some provider, or maybe within a centralized exchange, you would press the staking button. And what's happening in that case is essentially you're taking credit exposure on that exchange. So that exchange is doing the staking and then it is fronting you the interest as an obligation. From an economic perspective, I think what's important is a couple of changes. The first change is that in the world of mining, Ethereum has emissions. Emissions are also just inflation. It's how much of the money supply are you expanding? And Ethereum has emissions that go to reward the miners for their work, distribute that lottery of reward across mining activity. And so that rate is somewhere between 4 and 5%, I think it's 4.6% historically for the last year. And so that is inflationary. That's what we as holders of Ethereum, of ETH, pay to the miners for their service, which is valuable. Now, the tricky thing with crypto is that the 4.5% inflation, that's the supply. That's how much of the stuff there is. Most of the price is driven by demand. So you keep supply constant or you inflate it at 5% and then you have demand go 1,000 times up and then 95% down. Guess which one matters more? So you have huge variability in price that responds to, is this asset worth holding and can I use it for anything and can I afford to use it for anything? And that's where we can talk about the macroeconomic environment. So the swings in price, if it goes up 400% or 3x or 5x and then it goes down 80%, you're not going to notice the 5% inflation. If, as we want, the thing becomes a $10 trillion asset where it's really running the internet the way that it's meant to be, and the internet has this digital scarcity I talked about, and human-scale economies, if it's a $10 trillion asset, that supply side really matters. That 5% is going to really matter because you shouldn't have insane swings in your GDP. If your GDP goes up 400% and then falls 80%, it's just, it's nuclear war. Things are not good. Anyway, that's all to say that this is building the long-term viability of the network. The proof of stake chain is taking the four and a half, 4.6% down to about 0.5% in terms of emissions. There's a massive decrease in emissions once we're off proof of work. And that's because you don't need to incentivize people as much at least that's the hypothesis, as you do with mining. It's not as specialized, it's easier and more participation. What are you optimizing for? You're optimizing for security. So those numbers are derived in order to get equivalent or better security of the network. The inflation itself is about half a percent. And then 
On top of that, there's the burning mechanism. So if you have a transaction, you pay gas for that transaction, which is ETH for that transaction. You pay the network's money. And part of that goes to the validators as a fee, as a thank you, which is why the validator is not getting 0.5%. They're getting more. So part of that is going to the validators. And then the other part is destroyed. It's burnt. And that's already implemented in Ethereum now. That's happening currently. But the burning of ETH is deflationary. It reduces the supply. It's negative emissions. And so if you have very few transactions, then you have little destruction of ETH. If you have a lot of transactions, it's super popular, CryptoKitties to the max, then you're going to start burning off the money supply and you can get to negative rates of inflation. So you're going to get to deflation. And that's why a lot of folks refer to this monetary policy as ultrasound money. True or not, we'll see, but good economic activity, then you can have a flat money supply or it can even go down. That's the core switch in terms of the emissions. And then in terms of, well, what do you get as a validator? It depends on a bunch of things. One of the things is just like how many people are actually staking. So if there is a couple of points of return to go around, if 10% of people are staking, then you multiply those points of return by 10. If 100% of the people are staking, then you multiply it by one. And if it's 50%, then you multiply it by five, I guess, in my example. The whole thing depends on participation rates. It depends on economic activity. And then I think it depends on a couple of other technical upgrades that may happen around capturing arbitrage stuff. And so that's why for any particular individual that's staking, they can see the higher interest rate than the half of percent of inflation. That's helpful. I think a lot of people have been confused by that online, hearing about the half percent and getting scared with this most recent learning of you don't know where the yield comes from, then you should be asking a lot more questions. So just to kind of hit home on that, for the average retail in this new world where more people are handling it, when they think about the interest rate, what types of things would you do if to do it here, but to think about trying to calculate that where we're going to land that between three and 10? So it depends on how many of the holders of Ethereum, how many of ETH are staking? That's number one. So if very few people are staking and everyone else is just spending their money in a circle, then you're going to get a higher interest rate. If everyone is staking, then you're going to get a lower interest rate. And the reason for that is the rewards are a fixed number. So you're taking a rewards of 100 and you're dividing it by one person or 10 people or 100 people. And that's going to get you different amounts of return. And then number two is, this isn't exactly right, but I think it's an analogy. Let's take the Visa network because people love that. So the Visa network takes a fee, an interchange fee, on payments that go through it. So what Visa cares about, just volumes going through it. And so it'll do everything possible to connect volume into the Visa network because it's going to take a tiny, tiny percent of that volume. And that's the revenue to maintain the network. Very similar logic. For Ethereum, it's a network and it's meant to run applications and move assets around. So it needs an economy. And an economy has people making things and then other people buying things and then interacting with them. And you're interacting with these digital objects and digital assets. And to do that, you need the money of the network. And that's essentially the tiny little percentage fee, which is the protocol revenue, which quote unquote maintains the network by being fed back to validators and then being burnt. And so if you have a beautiful, amazing economy of lots of people doing stuff, that's going to be higher. 
but you're not going to be sad to be like, oh, the fees are higher because they're not out of a total. That means the economy is bigger. So you're taking as a percentage, just same number, but the amount is going to be bigger. So you're going to be happy when those fees are higher to feed the network because that means the whole economy is growing and a percentage is coming out to pay for the security and for the validation. If the whole thing doesn't work and nobody's using it and so on, you're going to get less of those fees. I think it's going to be much worse if nobody's using it because the demand side breaks and then price collapses as a result of that. It's very clever. And just the last point to give us an update there, if we take away this idea of liquid staking, we're using a third party, an exchange or a protocol, and you've kind of transferred that illiquidity risk. If you're directly staking, how does the timeline to get your liquidity back out? So if you spun up a node and you put 32 ETH in it, when can I take that money back out? I don't think I can give very precise guidance. The merge is not about solving that problem. The merge is about changing the underlying blockchains. I think once you've changed the underlying blockchains, there's a whole number of technical upgrades and improvements that happen after. It could be within a few months, it could be a bit longer, over a year, but I'm not exactly sure when the unlocking is for the staking, when that turns on. But it's both the staking unlocking is important. In addition, there are upgrades focused on additional scalability. So putting throughput and driving throughput to be in the thousands of transactions per second, that's part of the native roadmap of Ethereum, not of a layer two or rollup or whatever, but part of the core network. And I think these are the next items to check off once the merge happens and you need the next gen blockchain in order to accomplish the rest of the stuff. I just want to touch on that. So let's talk about some of the, the today stuff, which I just think is fascinating, how the market's positioning for this. On the screen right now, ETH's hovering around $1,600, but the number that I'm most interested in is the funding rate on the derivative markets perpetuals is over negative 200%, which is saying that people have gotten very short ETH. Can you help us understand what this idea of a couple things? First, let's start with the ETH fork. And this idea that people are borrowing ETH potentially to get airdrops. And I know that this is all very risky. It's not financial advice, but I just think it's fascinating to watch what people are doing positioning for this event that's less than 24 hours away. A lot of this is tea leaves. What you're doing is you're trying to interpret stories out of quantitative activity. And then everyone agrees on what that story is. And then the next step is to try and play against that story because you figured out, oh, this is the story. So I'm going to short that story because certainly that's going to end. And then you have this stacking of mental constructions. And in the end, you just have chaos and meaninglessness. It's hard for me to point to the underlying truth, but we can open up some of the stories that people tell. The first bit is we've talked about this transition. One of the things that transition does is make life harder for proof-of-work miners. The rigs that are optimized for mining Bitcoin are not the same thing as the rigs that are optimized necessarily for mining ETH. And if the miners no longer get the rewards from mining ETH, they have a hole in their business and they don't like that. But they're also gigantic holders of ETH. They have so much exposure to the asset. Imagine you're a business that has been mining some asset and you're holding it, that's your balance sheet, that's your treasury, you're not going to nuke your own treasury. You're just not. Even if in the short term, your incentive is to figure out a way to retain your future cash flow, you're still not going to shoot yourself in the foot. So you have to figure out how to repurpose that infrastructure. And so what can 
a crypto miner do? What requires GPUs or CPUs in a server farm in large amount? There's not a lot of stuff and there's a lot of competition. So you can either switch to mining other coins. And so if you look at the Bitcoin hash rate right now, it's actually trending up because people are switching in advance. You'll see stories, especially for the public miner companies, stories about we're switching to the cloud. If we've got CPUs, we're going to provide cloud services. Good luck competing with Amazon and Google. Or we are going to do machine learning workloads. So machine learning is very GPU intensive, but very specialized. So I'm not technical enough to know whether GPU mining transitions to GPU AI processing, but that's another place where the miners are going. One last thing you could do is throw a Hail Mary and say, that's nice. We're going to continue to do what we're doing. And we're going to give you your favorite proof of work Ethereum, just as it used to be in a fork. And that's happened in other chains. That's happened with Bitcoin Cash and BSV and Ethereum Classic and so on. And so I have no idea how likely such a fork really is. But in the past, we've seen examples where a competing network will be worth anywhere from 15% of the first network to 5% down to 1% and zero. So a bunch of the stuff I've kind of named has fizzled out, even though it retained a little bit of value in the beginning. There is a possibility, although not a certainty, that there's going to be another, a second proof of work fork of Ethereum in addition to Ethereum Classic that miners attempt to stand up. And so if you hold an ETH position, one of the stories is that maybe you'll get ETH on this other chain, and that will be kind of like a dividend. That's one of the plays. And again, there's speculation that people are borrowing ETH to hold it on chain into the merge so that it'll appear that they hold more ETH in case this dividend happens. And then what about some of the other stories of people being, I like how you kind of phrase it, this is a tea leaves game, but crypto Twitter and narratives seem to take the day, especially on a day like this. So what about the other stuff of people being short just because they're large ETH holders and the technical risk of actually pulling this off? There can be many interpretations. You can be short because you think that you're expecting people to sell ETH after they've gotten their ETH from the proof of work chain. And so they're only trying to gain the dividend. And so you're short because you're positioning for the sell-off that hasn't happened because you believe that things have been bought up for some artificial reason that's not fundamental. You're trying to get into somebody's brain and think that you know what they think. There is just the straight up, like you say, technical risk. Well, what happens if this thing, if it doesn't compute? And I think that for somebody very, very short term, maybe that's a useful set of thinking. But for somebody with really any capacity for patience, I don't know that that's a reasonable play. Are you going to short Elon Musk for the fact that his rocket like blew up in testing? And the answer is like, obviously not. On some horizon, whether it's this week or whether it's in some other short term period, ETH will be a proof of stake chain as described. All right, last narrative I want to hit you with, then I've got a longer term question to get back to you. So there was definitely some confusion over just, and I thought it was just more interesting hypotheticals for people that own NFTs and the notion of, are you copying everything twice if there actually was a fourth network? How would that work if they were to both to exist? This goes back to the very beginning of like, we need a human understandable economy. We're so not used to these edge questions. It just puts us off and it's like, but it's broken now. It's everything's wrong. 
there is two of it, but there was one. And how can it be? And it's just not right. And what did you pay for? And what is ownership? And what's the nature of the universe? And that to me shows the value of certainty. It shows the value of why you actually need the one network on which everything sits and is the real timeline and so on. There are different kinds of NFTs. There are some that are generated on chain. And so like all the code comes from on chain code. And that's really hard. There are not that many projects of that type. That's not, oh, a JPEG sits on an IPFS. That's really hard. And it's rendered by your browser based on the code on chain. In that case, the new chain or the proof of work chain, it will be a different chain. It'll have a different chain ID. I don't know what that means. I'll be honest with you, but it will have a different chain ID. So a number will be different. So even if the same code replayed will generate the same visual object, it will not have the same authenticity. This goes to, again, I think the completely misled question of, well, why don't I just have the JPEG of the thing? You need to be able to answer the question of the JPEG. And the answer to the question of the JPEG is when you're buying a piece of art, you're not buying the image. You're not. If you're buying the Mona Lisa, it is not the Mona Lisa picture that you're buying. You're buying the historical fact of the object. You're buying the history of the painter putting down the brushstroke on that canvas. You're buying the experience that that painting has had over time and who has owned it in the past, i.e. painting can be more valuable if somebody important owned it, as an example. So people are confused about what the value of art is. They think that it's the image and their enjoyment of it. That is not the case. If you have this confusion, then you can't tell the difference between a poster of the Mona Lisa, a skillful exact reproduction of the Mona Lisa by criminal, and the actual Mona Lisa. They are distinct. And so similarly with the NFT, it's the same thing, which is provenance, authenticity, its history, the interactions, and so on and so forth. Okay, so in the case of all the code is on chain and is generated now in a different manner, well, it's a different object. It's in a different place. It has a different authenticity. Maybe you can prey on somebody's confusion, but it's not really going to work because it's unlikely the proof of work chain is going to have the presence or support of any of the DeFi protocols or any of the stable coins or any of the NFT platforms. So you're not going to have liquidity. You're not going to have anything around it. Alternately, the second example is there is some image or some file that is stored on IPFS, so on a file storage network. What is sitting on the blockchain is a pointer to that file that calls it and then your browser renders it. And so this is where a lot of skeptics and technologists really enjoy like finger wagging, like you just own a link. It's great. Wonderful. It goes down to the same issue, which is the link that you own. It's not the picture and it's not the link that matters. It's the what the two things combine to as the nexus of those things, of all the circumstances around it and what is the provenance and the history of the particular object. So again, it's like, while somebody may be duped at the edges, I think, to me at least, there's no real challenge other than to say that like, yeah, digital goods can be downloaded as copies, but that doesn't go at the heart of the issue. This has been fun doing the crypto Twitter stories. We'll have to do that again sometime. Let's just zoom back out. So you're the head economist for Consensus. I'm sure lots of big institutions are calling you and asking what's going on. I'm curious from the inbound calls from the larger traditional players, how does something as large as Ethereum now moving to proof of stake and some of the environmental concerns or other issues, there might still be regulation hang up. 
How have those conversations gone as you've had to kind of answer some of those questions? I think the ESG angle is quite important. The issue there is what is the reduction in electricity usage for the network? And I think our estimates are over 99% and higher in terms of energy reduction. And I think it's important, again, from a narrative perspective, it's absolutely important for a climate perspective and the fundamentals of it. But these numbers are right now also so small that they are practically not stopping anybody from using the network. If the thing is a thousand times larger and worth 10 trillion, then maybe it, it becomes a discussion of like, is this electricity worth it or not? But at this stage, I think the story and the alignment is really important. And the alignment is just like, we want Web3 to be an aspirational story about a better future. That's at the core. At the edges, there's lots of fringes and stuff like that. But the people who are building in the space for years and are kind of suffering through being seen as eccentrics or weirdos or whatever, they're doing it because they aspire to build a better future. And they want to do that creatively and in like this funky way and all of that. And so I think there's really strong alignment by removing the climate impact concern. I think it unblocks a whole bunch of narratives that investors can say. And it is important that Elon Musk does not meme that crypto is destroying the planet. Whether or not it's true is a separate issue, but to take away Elon Musk's power to meme it is really important. And I think also associated with this, a tangible thing is NFTs and NFT artists. And I know that when the NFT boom a year ago was going on, especially in digital art, a lot of those communities were concerned and put off about I'm making a piece of art that's supposed to inspire and is poetic. And this is the carbon footprint cost of my art. And for like a hard-nosed capitalist like me and you, whatever, burn it. How much Amazon stock do I get? But for a lot of creators and artists and people who are growing communities and brands, it is a legitimate barrier in terms of their ability to feel good about what they're doing. And so I think the energy reduction is going to be a massive improvement in being able to bring more types of people on. And if we want people who are going to build the metaverse concept, so gaming, media and entertainment, Hollywood brands and so on, if we want that group, and again, I think addressing the social impact bit is really important. On the financial services side, ESG mandates are important too. Like there's a structural advantage to ESG assets. I think there's been a little bit of a pushback on that recently, but the structural mandate doesn't go away. And then the regulatory concern you flagged is real. The uncertainty is there. End of the day, we're just going to go into a multi-year grinder on that and see where it comes out. That's unavoidable. That's kind of a great place to wrap up because when you started it, you, know, you talked about the decentralization at this world where Google, Amazon... Facebook control the world and hope that people thought like, well, maybe there's a different way to run the internet, something that most people on the planet can have access to. Well, I think years ago when this was first pitched to me, it attracts a certain personality where it wasn't because I thought it was going to work. It was just to meet amazing people that are willing to try it. And that's the part that I find just massively inspiring. And I love meeting all the misfits and crazy builders that are willing to try it in the face of everyone telling you, you're an idiot. This is never going to work. Don't do it. So we like to end these podcasts with the same question. You have a unique perspective at Consensus Builder and Enabler. What are you most excited to see built or help shape over the next six months? 
And what are you most excited to see over the next six years and broadly the Web3 space? I have a very novelty-seeking kind of lens. I filter for things that are on the edge. So I tend to be excited about things that are often the most unproven. I'll give you two things that I'm looking at. I guess they actually are connected, which is DAO tooling for running DAOs as productive organizations and then off-ramps back into the physical world and often off-ramps from DAOs. The examples of that would be things like I spent a lot of time in fintech, so this is what's exciting to me now. But things like payroll processing for DAOs or finance operations or treasury management, and then the ability to take those cash flows and plug them into off-ramps so that people can take that money and live their lives in not just the digital world and where they eat Snoop Dogg burgers or whatever, but in the physical world where they can go and have a sandwich. And so the reason I'm excited for that is because there's a dark path or there's a mistaken path that all of this stuff can go on. And that is putting finance before the economy. No economy has ever started by being finance first. Columbus didn't land in the States and say, first thing we're going to build is a bank. And then we're going to have derivatives in the bank. Not going to happen. Instead, you start with productive activity. You have an operating economy of people working and making things. I'm making a table. I'm making a house. I'm planting in the farm. And then you have people buying those things and having trade. And then you create consumer surplus and producer surplus. And then you have a GDP. And then you have a little town and civilization that expands and expands. And then once you have that economy, that GDP, then you say, okay, well, I've got money in motion and payments. Now I want savings. I don't want to constantly trade. I want to put my money somewhere. So then you got savings accounts, then you got interest rates, and then you have lending if you want to start a business and investing and trading and insurance and retirement. And these things have been true for thousands of years. They're repeatable patterns. And so I think that the danger to crypto is our level of financialization is so high because it's so fun for finance geeks that we sometimes forget the operating economy. Now, the transition from ICOs to DeFi and NFTs, for example, was a huge step change. ICOs were a venture deck with a website to raise money. DeFi and NFTs were functional software used by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So it's a big step change. We need that next step change into a Web3 economy. And to me, DAOs are the shape of a business in the Web3 economy. So we can make businesses in the real world. We can't really make digital businesses without DAO structure. It's a collective for people to come together, produce stuff and sell it and have economic activity. So for me, the more that happens, the more you'll have a native operating economy that doesn't really rely on things outside of it. And then if that can fuel how people maintain their physical needs, then the whole thing starts to make sense. That's excellent. Lex, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Happy to help. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 